Hello and welcome back to the Ear Fuel Podcast. As always, I'm Joel Freemark, and you can follow me on Twitter at, at @getearfuel and at the Daily Guru. The podcast is always available in the iTunes and Google Play stores under Ear Fuel and at getearfuel.com. This week, I'm going to introduce you all to one of the most mysterious and intriguing groups to ever top the charts across the world without anybody really remembering them. It's going to be a wild ride through music history that you're going to have to hear to believe. But before that, a quick album review. The album I want to review today is the most recent release from the great Leonard Cohn, and it's called You Want It Darker. This is the 14th studio release from the now 82-year-old singer and poet, and he's been recording his own brand of introspective, often really dark music since the late 60s. From songs like Bird on the Wire, Suzanne, and Famous Blue Raincoat, to the Oh, Will Everybody Please Stop Covering It, Hallelujah, Cohn has left his mark on nearly every single one of the past five decades. Now, just a few years ago, he proved that he was very much still capable of making great songs with his old Ideas album. I really dug that. And this record is further proof to that statement. This may very well be the angriest record that he's ever released, but he seems to be more angry with himself than anyone else, and he spins these tales of regret and somber reality in words that you can't help but be moved by. I mean, in the title track, Kicking Things Off, he says... I struggled with some demons, they were middle class and tame, I didn't know I had permission to murder and to maim. Yeah, the title of this album is very much a warning. In fact, you can kind of see this record as Leonard Cohn giving his last statements to the world before he heads off to die. Sort of putting his house in order as was kind of alluded to in a piece in The New Yorker a few weeks ago. Whether it's his statement of, I'm leaving the table, I'm out of the game, or I'm ready, my lord, or, well, pretty much every lyric here, the deeper and darker meaning is as obvious as ever. But at the same time, such themes are nothing new for Leonard Cohn, but it's perhaps the way his voice sounds these days and the reality of his age that makes them more powerful. I mean, his voice, it's... It's like a softer yet somehow darker Tom Waits, but every bit is captivating. And for my money, I'll take this raspier sound any day. Musically, the album manages to be diverse yet cohesive as the slow bass lines keep things connected, while the musical foreground ranges from flamenco to southern flares to simple, quiet string sections. And those string sections that run throughout the album are one of the best parts, as when they combine with his voice or those of the choir singers, the overall mood overflows in the best way possible. The bottom line is, Leonard Cohn continues to be one of the most prolific and mesmerizing voices in the history of music. And even if you've been less than in love with his previous work, You Want It Darker is the caliber of album everyone needs to spend time with. Moving on. Today, I want to spend some time discussing one of the most fascinating pieces of music history that not enough people know about. It's the epitome of performance art in some ways and represents musical anarchy on a level the Sex Pistols could never even imagine. It's a duo that, over just a few short years of existence, single-handedly turned part of the music world upside down and all the time creating some of the finest dance music there was. That's right, today we're going to discuss a group formerly and formerly known as the Justified Ancients of Moo Moo, sometimes called The Jams for short, not to be confused with the other group, The Jam, and a band that once also called themselves The Time Lords. Today, we are going to discuss the KLF. Now, if you've never even heard of the KLF, 
don't feel bad. They were only around for about five years at the end of the 80s, barely made a blip in the United States, and made it almost impossible to find their back catalog. But trust me when I say, the stories I'm about to tell are both real and so fascinating that I'm guessing you're going to be scouring YouTube when we're done. So let's all hop in our TARDISes and head back to 1986, as hair metal was on the rise, and what was once disco was beginning to really rumble loud again as house and other styles of dance music. In the UK, the head of Zoo Records, Bill Drummond, began to bond with Jimmy Cauty, whose band Brilliant was on that label. They had a shared passion for the Illuminatus trilogy of books, and especially the ideas of postmodern anarchism and the overall theme of discordianism. The two decided that they would form a hip-hop band, of course, adopting the alter egos of King Boy D and Rockman Rock, marking the formal beginning of the Justified Ancients of Moo Moo, taking the name directly from that trilogy of books. Keep those books in mind, because they're really an important part to this story. Actually, you know what? I think those books are so important to the history of the KLF that it's time for the first ever Ear Fuel Book Report. Don't worry, no spoilers, just the gist. You hear about the Illuminatus trilogy and the Illuminati talked about all the time, and it all stems from these books, which were first published in 1975 by Robert Shea and Robert Anton Wilson. The trilogy is a satirical work of postmodern science fiction, and it's laden with historical and imaginary conspiracy theories. The story itself is pretty fast-paced, and it switches between first and third-person perspectives in this wildly non-linear format, but it spends lots of time in things like numerology, anarchy, counterculture, and the aforementioned ideas of discordianism. You get many implications of world domination by this Illuminati, and there are many passages about using subtle jokes to cause social confusion. This is really the beginning of conspiracy theory fiction, and many passages and themes have been taken far too seriously over the past four decades, including that whole notion that the Illuminati are real and they run the United States, which is why there's that eye in the pyramid on the back of dollar bills. Yeah, that's where this brand of crazy starts. So yeah, that's really the super quick book report. It's kind of all you need to know about it as we delve into the KLF because you're going to see these themes and influences pop up time and time again. This book was really their ethos on many levels. Now, the hip-hop version of the jams. We're going to call them the jams instead of the justified ancients of Moo because it's quicker. The jams. They sought to interpret the principles of their fictional counterparts through music production in the corporate music world. That is to say, they were so into these books, they were trying to do what they said in the books in the real world. Yeah, Bill Drummond was really well-respected in the music industry already, and he understood how it worked, but more importantly, he knew how to create something that would sell big. With all this in mind, as I see it, the weapon that they used the most was a digital sampler, as it allowed them to rip and rearrange the entire history of popular music. Remember, this is still about two years before the Beastie Boys release Paul's Boutique and all of, you know, the sampling license lawsuits begin. It's kind of the wild west of music sampling. The first single they released pulled heavily from the Beatles song All You Need Is Love, and it also borrowed the name, as well as Samantha Fox's song Touch Me. And the song itself was a very harsh critique of how the mass media was covering the AIDS epidemic. Remember, we're in the late 80s here, so AIDS is a massive issue, and the press is doing a horrible job of covering it in general. Here's a quick clip of the song. Wow, 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 wow. Wow, 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 wow. 
Now, it'll come as no surprise that no distributor wanted to touch this single due to the context and the sampling. But even with this reality and tons of threatened lawsuits, eh, the single managed to get some traction, and later, a slightly edited version managed to get the duo enough money to record their first album, which they called 1987. And in parentheses, what the fuck is going on? A song on that album took heavy samples from ABBA's Dancing Queen, and they were forced to withdraw the records from stores almost immediately due to copyright issues. So what did Drummond and Kauti do? That's right, they grabbed a photographer and journalist from the NME and flew to Sweden in hopes of finding the band members from ABBA and coming to some sort of agreement. No joke, they were like, well, these people don't like it? Eh, let's go talk to them face to face. When they were understandably unable to locate the once relevant band, they burned the bulk of the copies of the album in a field and then threw the rest overboard in the North Sea as they were traveling home. No joke, they really did that. No official repressings were ever made, and it's damn near impossible to find an original. But trust me, this is just the beginning of the rather unique behavior of the duo, doing it all in the name of artistic integrity. Following that incident, the duo officially formed KLF Communications, which would be their record label moving forward, and it was completely independent throughout its entire existence. This was also the point where their sound shifted from hip-hop to more of a house and dance rhythm, but they were far from being done with massive sampling. Their next single was humorously titled Whitney Joins the Jams, and it pulled large samples from the themes of Shaft and Mission Impossible, as well as Whitney Houston's I Want to Dance with Somebody, which was topping the charts at the time. Here's a brief clip of that song. The single didn't hit the charts, but it was an underground secret and earned them just enough money to release the second and final album under the name of The Jams. 1988's aptly titled Who Killed The Jams, and Melody Maker referred to the record as, and I'm quoting here, divine nihilism and an outward show of self-deception, irrationality, and bankruptcy. Another magazine called it hopeless bravado in the face of massed corporate opposition. And there was little doubt that Drummond and Kauti were onto something. Something that the large labels were beginning to notice. And really hate. And want to do something about. But as the album implied, this was the end of the justified ancients of Moo, as the duo clearly felt that, you know, it had run its course, and with their rising star, they decided to show their overall intentions. They borrowed the name The Time Lords from the UK TV show Doctor Who, and released just one song called... Doctor and the TARDIS. The TARDIS, of course, is the time and dimension travel ship that the Doctor uses in Doctor Who, for those of you listening that are not Whovians. The song was another act of sonic thievery, blending together the TV show theme music with the Sweets song Blockbuster and Gary Glitter's classic Rock and Roll Part 2. And the duo claimed that they had gotten the advice on how to make the song and what to change the group name to from, that's right, Cowdy's 1968 Ford Galaxy police car. I am being totally serious. They said, quite seriously, that the car told them its name was Ford Time Lord, and Ford Time Lord is credited in the single's liner notes because, you know, that's something that sane people do, right? But this single is also where the calculated genius begin to show. 
as they wrote it deliberately to be a number one single. As Drummond said, quote, we wanted to show how easy it was to manipulate the lowest common denominator of music fan. And so they basically took every proven pop element and they put it into one song. And the result was a number one single. It sold over a million copies and in many ways, this provided the bankroll for the real musical anarchy that was about to occur. Under the name of the Time Lords, they released just that one song, and following it, the duo renamed themselves again as the KLF, noting in the press that songs from the new group would be pure dance music and to not really be reviewed in music papers. In short, they were already tired of other people having expectations for their music. So instead of doing another one of these heavily sampled songs, they threw it all out and decided to create music that they said would have no musical reference points without any nod to the history of rock and roll. They were basically going rogue. Now the name, the KLF, it has stood for many things over time. It started as the Copyright Liberation Front, with a K in copyright, and it was a direct nod to the blatant sampling that they were doing. Later, the duo just started making things up, like Kings of the Lower Frequency and Kevin Likes Fruit and Keep Looking Forward. But at its core, the original explanation is what most people go by. Anyway, on to the strange. And remember, everything I've said and everything I'm about to talk about transpired in just under five years. So the last year of the 80s, that's really when raves start to become a thing. And the KLF's track, 3AM Eternal, burst onto the scene. And many point to it as one of the greatest acid house tracks ever. You might know this one. It sounds like this. This is also when the whole performance art aspect of the duo really starts to blossom. If they played a gig, you can guarantee that something interesting was going to happen. Like the evening they dumped $1,000 worth of Scottish pounds onto the crowd and they each had a message that said, Children, we love you, written on it. Or their road movie, The White Room, the soundtrack of which you can actually get, thanks to it being released via Arista Records in the U.S. And it's also the time that Cowdy formed a bit of a side project. They're called The Orb, and if you're into electronic music, you've no doubt heard of them, as it was a more straightforward ambient sound. Just a few months later, as the 90s kicked off, the KLF started to reintegrate rap into their house music tracks, and pretty much any group that blends electronic and hip-hop owes some of their sound to the pioneering efforts of the KLF. In fact, their track, Last Train to Transcentral, was used as the finale in Blue Man Group performances for more than two decades. Now fast forward to December 91, because a lot of things happen in a very short period. On their 1987 album that we discussed for a second earlier, there is a song called Justified and Ancient, and it's a direct nod to the name they were using at the time, Justified Ancients of Moo Moo. Four years later, 1991, they decided to dust the song off, change the sound and words to be more akin to the approach they were taking at present, and then they were able to have brand new lead vocals added by, that's right, Tammy Wynette. Yeah, the first lady of country, the woman who sang Stand By Your Man. That Tammy Wynette was singing lead vocals for one of the most bleeding-edge performance art electronic groups in history. She even appeared in the wonderfully bizarre video that you can find on YouTube. Here's a quick clip from the track. They call me up in Tennessee. They said, Tammy, stand by the jam. But 
Many people still cite the song as the oddest pairing of people in all of music history. And when asked about the song, Wynette stated that, I really don't know why they chose me. I was apprehensive at first, but I'm really excited with the way it's all turned out. Adding, Moo Moo Land looks a lot more interesting than Tennessee, but I wouldn't want to live there. The song was pretty successful across the world, cracking the top five in more than a dozen countries and bumping Michael Jackson from the top of the charts in Sweden and New Zealand. Yeah, the song was big, and P.S., the remade version, was subtitled Stand By The Jams, which was a purposeful nod to Tammy Wynette's big single. But wait, there's more. See, following a handful of hit dance tracks in 1990 in the first part of 91, Drummond and Cowdy were getting big money to remix songs by Depeche Mode, The Pet Shop Boys, and other big artists. And they somehow managed, and I'm not kidding you here, to end up as the biggest-selling singles act in the world for the year of 1991, the year that Michael Jackson's Dangerous album is released, and these guys were the top-selling singles act on the planet, and yet most people have no idea who they are. Don't worry, though. The strangest of the strange is yet to come. So December of 1991, Justified and Ancient takes over the dance clubs, but few people knew that the band had less than 60 days left in existence. Yeah. It was almost all over, but with this eccentric a group, they weren't going to bow out quietly. This takes us to February 12th, 1992, a day that lives in British music infamy. Seriously, that was the night of the yearly Brit Awards, which are basically the UK equivalent of the Grammy Awards, but just for pop music. Since the KLF were, as stated, the biggest selling singles act on earth, they were, of course, invited to perform and actually opened the show to an audience of industry bigwigs who were all in tuxes and super, super stuffy. Knowing this, the duo decided to perform their hit, 3AM Eternal, but with a little twist. They enlisted the services of the hardcore punk group Extreme Noise Terror and gave what some people called a violently antagonistic performance that left the entire audience stunned. Now, I know, at face value, a hardcore band on stage isn't that stunning. But remember how the KLF were all about subversion and chaos? Well, they knew that this was going to be their final performance, and they decided to make it one no one ever forgot. Their initial plan was to have huge buckets of sheep's blood thrown all over the audience. But BBC lawyers got in the way of that, and, you know, extreme noise terror were vegans. And they kind of had an issue with it, because yes, vegans existed before 2005. So instead... Midway through the performance, Drummond pulled out a very real fully automatic rifle and proceeded to fire hundreds of blanks into a shocked audience. Again, remember, this is the early 90s. Guns like this on stage just aren't something that happens. The overall visual and sonic assault, combined with the general chaos of the band on stage, plus the gun in 1992 England, it was enough to actually have the segment cut from every rebroadcast. But the band still weren't done. When the band walked off stage, their promoter was suddenly on the PA system and announced that, quote, the KLF have now left the music business. We're going to get back to this quote in a second because more happened that night. See, at one of the big after parties, Drummond and Cauty actually had a dead sheep dropped in the middle of the dance floor with a note on it that said, I died for you. Bon appetit. Quite a night. And yes, you can find some of the performance on YouTube as well. But back to that quote about the group leaving the industry. 
It went largely ignored that evening due to the gun and the sheep, but it was to be taken quite literally, and the KLF would go further than anyone else in history in terms of retiring from the music industry. Shortly after the Brits, they released a wonderfully cryptic message that ended with a line that dropped jaws across the industry. It read as follows. We have been following a wild and wounded, glum and glorious, shit but shining path these past five years, the last two of which have led us up to the commercial high ground. We are at a point where the path is about to take a sharp turn from these sunny uplands down into another world we know not what. For the foreseeable future, there will be no further record releases from the Justified Ancients of Moo, the Time Lords, the KLF, or any other past, present, and future name attached to our activities. As of now, all of our past releases are deleted. If we meet further along, be prepared. Our disguise may be complete. That's right. They deleted their entire catalog. What that means is that they removed their record from every associated catalog, and this prevented any further pressings. But the KLF went even further, as all of their songs were on digital masters. So when they deleted them, they literally deleted them. Their entire catalog, every single song, gone. Understandably, original KLF vinyl is insanely tough to find, and usually it's just cheap bootlegs being sold online. Since it was all independently released, they had all the masters. And aside from the Arista US release of The White Room and a few singles, you just couldn't get their music anymore. And that remains to this day. Strangely, in January of 2013, the entire KLF catalog suddenly appeared in the iTunes store. But they turned out to be bootleg recordings and were taken down just a few hours later. But while they stopped making music at that moment, the KLF itself didn't disappear right away and it turned into the K-Foundation, which was basically an arts foundation. They quickly created the K-Foundation Art Award, which they gave a few times for the worst artist of the year, and they also burned a million British pounds in cash, which they said was the final earnings from the KLF, and they filmed the burning. Oh, they also managed to get a bunch of journalists there for the burning, and convinced them all to dress in ceremonial robes around a burning wicker man, and they called it the Rites of Moo. In 1997, they had a very brief reunion, appearing on stage in old man makeup with motorized wheelchairs, and they performed a remixed version of their song, Fuck the Millennium. And that? That's the KLF in a nutshell. Just a couple years of absolute chaos, and they were gone. But let's step back for a second and look what was accomplished underneath all of that artsy chaos. From beginning to end, the duo were all about the art above all else. While money and success were nice... In almost every single case, as soon as they had that hit or gained notoriety, they shut the project down and moved in a different direction. It's sort of the idea that they conquered a style and then they left it in the dust. Innovation and new challenges were what these two thrived on, and once they topped the charts across the globe, it seemed like they'd made their point and, well, they quit at the top. I mean, we're talking retiring after winning the Super Bowl on top is what they did here. And yet... With this undeniable success and some pretty crazy public displays, the KLF remained comparatively unknown. Sure, a fair amount of people will recognize the sound of 3AM Eternal, and those who watched Insomniac Theater in the early 90s might remember Justified in Ancient, but aside from those two blips, I mean, when was the last time you heard someone or any music magazine mention the KLF? There's just no precedent for this sort of, I don't know, disappearance from the musical timeline? The KLF are not some one-hit wonder. 
They had a number of significant songs and ridiculous sales numbers. It's, it's almost the perfect example of a time gone by. That is to say, in 2016, this just couldn't happen. There's no way you could have that sort of success and be forgotten in the era of social media. I mean, I don't even know if you can be subversive in the same way in modern times. Looking past the fact that brandishing guns on stage doesn't have the same shock factor as it did 25 years ago, the tactics that they used, from sampling to independent releases, it it just doesn't work the same anymore. I mean, nothing is really independent anymore, and their move to delete their catalog would have made little difference in 2016. The second they made a release, it would have been blasted across the globe, remixed, reposted, and ripped off before the sun came up. It would have been perfectly preserved in countless places, making their attempt to disappear completely futile. And that, to me, is the magic behind the KLF. There was this level of mystery and intrigue that made it, I don't know, fun in a way that no other group has conveyed. To know the KLF is to be part of a really cool secret, and I'm glad to now welcome each and every one of you into a fascination that has occupied me since the 90s. Happy hunting. Now, before we wrap the episode, I do, of course, have your weekly Ear Fuel listening assignment. For those of you new to the podcast, each week I assign an album to listen to in full, beginning to end, without any distractions or interruptions. It stems from the fact that these days music has been largely relegated to a background task. You're at the gym, you're driving, you're at work, whatever. And this assignment is about taking some time each week to consciously listen to music for the sake of music alone. This week, I'm going to change it up a bit, as many people asked why I only suggest much older records in this spot each week. So your assignment this week is something far more recent, but just as essential as any other listening assignment. It's Kikagaku Moyo's incredible 2014 record, Forest of Lost Children. When it comes to knowing the best musical secrets on earth, the last few years have formed a cult of Kikagaku Moyo, one of the most dazzling of the Japanese psych rock-style bands. But don't let the label of psych rock deter you, as this is about as rock and roll as you could possibly want. In fact, I will argue it as the finest rock record of the past few years. And to get to the point, if you're into killer guitar and mind-bendingly original orchestrations, this one is going to put a permanent smile on your face. You know what? Scratch that. Every time you spin the album's centerpiece, the song Smoke and Mirrors, your face basically melts. It's that devastatingly beautiful. And at seven minutes, all you want is more when it ends, really. But see, that's just the center. This album has a flow and a feel that's nothing short of perfect as it gently leads you into a hypnotic world you've never known before blowing your mind away with soaring guitars, mesmerizing rhythms, and just an enchanting atmosphere that you want to dive into again and again. Even when they're mellowing things out, there's this wonderful tension and the monstrous riffs and solos will be stuck in your head in a good way. Really, you can't help but turn this album up louder and louder and louder. And even after you've played it tons of times, the outright exhilarating musical landscapes they create continue to amaze and make you rock out. Trust me, there is not a second anywhere on this album short of phenomenal. And to be perfectly honest, I've yet to meet anyone that didn't dig this album. The guitars, the sitar, the deep, deep bass groove, the wild drumming, it's all here waiting to be loved. And if you're one of those people who thinks great rock is somehow dead, this record is the punch in the face that you've been waiting for. Bottom line is, 
Forest of Lost Children is just one of those records that the second you hear it, you know you're going to be cranking it up for the rest of your life. And if somehow you've yet to spin this modern classic, go change that right now. Thank me later. So that's all for this week, and I know now it's time for all of us to go find the KLF on YouTube. Be sure to hit me up on Twitter at at GetEarFuel and at the Daily Guru, and let me know what you like about the KLF. As always, the podcast is available at GetEarFuel.com and in the iTunes and Google Play stores. That is your weekly Ear Fuel. Share and enjoy. (laughs) 